Welcome back to Nutrition Unlocked. I'm Anna Mole. In our last few episodes, we took a deep dive into the impact that nutrition has on how we age and why each person ages differently. Today, we'll be moving on to the topic of protein and the role it plays in the body. Joining me is Dr. Luke Van Loon, Professor of Exercise and Nutrition at the Department of Human Biology at Maastricht University Medical Center. Luke, it is really great to have you on today's episode. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. I think the topic of protein is top of mind for a lot of people, and it's certainly something that's talked about a lot with regards to people's health and wellness. But before we dive in, it would be great to hear a little bit about yourself and how you ended up working in the exercise and nutrition field. Um, as most scientists in this field, I think we're all failed professional athletes. So we wanted to know how the body works and why it's not working as we want it to be. And so you start studying medicine, science, nutrition in order to see how the body adapts. And I've always been interested in the adaptability of skeletal muscle tissue, how it changes with exercise. And over the course of the years, more and more on what happens when we become ill or immobilized. So the whole spectrum of why does muscle change and how it changes and how physical activity and nutrition affects it. Oh, that's great. Did you say you were an athlete? No, uh, failed athlete, meaning uh, you would like (laughs) to become an athlete, but you don't have the genetics for it. So now you at least understand or you're able to use your other talents in other ways, but still in the same field. Trying to use exercise and nutrition to compensate very little from not having the right genetics. (laughs) Well, it seems like you've gotten some other good genetic material. You've done a lot of research around protein, and some of your research covers topics such as the relationship between protein and skeletal muscle tissue, the role that protein can play post-exercise, and also plant-derived proteins. And you've done so much interesting work, and there are so many areas that I want to cover with you. But maybe let's start with some of the basics. Why do we need protein and how does our body use it? I think that's quite a difficult question. If you really look at it, it's more (laughs) difficult than you think. But yeah, all of our tissues are mainly composed of protein and water. And in order to keep them healthy, we need to uh, basically break them down and build them up again, because that is continuously happening with all our tissues. On the whole body level, we synthesize, we build up about 300 grams of protein on a daily basis. And you can imagine that's a lot of protein, of course, day in, day out. And we consume an average person uh, that is 75 kilograms will probably consume about 75 uh, grams of protein on a daily basis, which is less than the 300 grams of protein that we make on a daily basis. Mm. So it already shows you that the body is constantly reusing its own protein to build new protein, but it's not 100% efficient. Let's talk a little bit more about the role that protein plays in the functioning of our body. You've described it a little bit, but maybe you could talk about it a little bit more, which I think would really underscore why it's critical that we get enough protein. If you don't have enough protein, you can't just support the turnover of the tissues. And we believe that the turnover of the tissue, the constant synthesis and breakdown is a part of maintaining health and functionality of these different tissues. And of course, this is pretty abstract for most of these tissues, but for muscle, it's very obvious that muscle adapts to the use. And we see that protein intake and nutrition in the whole has an effect on the adaptability. And so maybe for your average person, and I know there's no such thing as an average person, but maybe for a regular person who does some level of exercise, um, but probably, you know, spends a lot of their time in maybe a more sedentary lifestyle as many of us do in this modern world. How does protein play a role in our everyday body work? We talked before that 
different people need different amounts of protein. How do you calculate how much protein you need? I mean, you said 75 grams, but I would imagine that somebody like me who is sitting at a desk for a lot of the day, tries to exercise on a regular basis would be quite different than someone who's maybe older, younger, more active, less active. How does somebody calculate what they need? You can't really calculate it, but you can look at stilt growth, for example, in children. You can look at body weight loss when you underconsume the amount of protein. Those are the extreme versions where you can see what the minimum amount is of protein that you require to sustain your mass. We know from the, the World Health Organization generally poses around 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body mass per day. But that's not necessarily the optimal amount of protein. Mm. People working in the field of nutrition and exercise and especially interested in muscle, we generally believe that for uh, recreational athletes, the optimal amount of protein is between 1.2 and 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body mass per day. But I think that discussion is not that relevant because if you're a, a recreational athlete spending a lot of hours exercising, your energy expenditure is high, mm. which also means that you consume a lot of food in order to sustain an energy balance. And if on average about 15 energy percent of your diet comes from protein, you can calculate that they generally consume well above the required amount of protein. In Physically active people consume more protein than they require to maximize or to optimize protein requirements. It becomes more interesting if you talk about patients or older people, where the reduced physical activity also results in less food intake. And then you can actually get at a point where your protein intake is suboptimal. And that's also an important topic because we know that when you become less active, you might actually require more protein and you actually consume less. So then it gets tricky. That's actually an interesting paradox. I think that's important for people to understand. So thank you very much for sharing that. You've also looked into the optimal role of protein in promoting athletic performance. So for high-performance athletes, what did you learn? What conclusions did you come to? So when I started my promotion research, my PhD research, I mainly focused on fuel selection. So with fuel selection, most important is to assess the availability of fat and carbohydrate in the body and how much of which source you use during exercise and what is needed to optimize your performance. Now, I've done that for many years and we know a lot about, for example, carbohydrate availability during moderate to high intensity exercise, etc. But as time progressed, I started to be interested in conditioning of the muscle, so the change of the muscle to exercise, the training responses. And there, of course, substrate supply from a fuel selection is less important. It's the building up the muscle. And then, of course, protein comes into play. So a lot of people are still thinking that protein has a lot to do with performance, but not necessarily during the performance itself. So protein is especially important in the many weeks, months, or even years building up towards that performance to become a better athlete, to support the, the training responses, and to get more bang for your buck if you want, to get the maximum out of your training. And of course, that is important for athletes that are exercising or training at the highest level. But it's also, of course, important for us mere mortals because we would like to get more out of less training because we're always restricted in time uh, and the sense of effort. And that's where protein can play a role because we know that if you provide enough protein, your adaptability, your adaptive response to exercise is increased and you get a greater stimulation of the muscle protein synthesis and specifically those proteins that you require to adapt to being, for example, a strength athlete or an endurance athlete or whatever. 
I would imagine that's something that's well understood, certainly more to learn, but that maybe better to say generally understood as they're planning their diet and their nutrition and their regimen. How well do you think that's understood by the broader public in terms of the role that protein plays, not just in the moment, but over the long term in terms of building your body? I think, that, I mean, you basically see that when people start thinking about a certain performance, they start thinking about it about a week before or maybe even a few hours before. And they don't realize that uh, the Olympic athletes that we see have been spending years and years to get where they actually are now. And that requires consistent training, but also consistent support from the nutrition. And one of those aspects is providing sufficient protein on specific time points throughout the day in order to maximize the adaptive response to the training that they impose upon themselves. And how does that, again, going back to kind of your your average or regular person, that pacing of protein or nutrition through the day, how, how would a regular person think about that? Fortunately, we don't have to think about it that much. Whether you're an athlete or not, your muscle turns over at a rate of 1% to 2% per day. And I always tell the students to look at their own arm and to realize that in two to three months from now, you have a completely new arm. In other words, you can continuously recondition your muscle. So your muscle now will be completely rebuilt by this summer. And so whether you're an athlete or not, that is something that is happening. This is probably the most difficult thing to make people explain is that in order to maintain the muscle that you have now, not even increase it, but maintain the muscle you have now, it's an active process. You need to stimulate the muscle building in order to maintain the muscle that you have now. And that requires anabolic stimuli. And those anabolic stimuli you encounter every day. And that's simply physical activity and food intake. And every meal that you consume, if there's ample protein in it, you will actually stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Simply eating stimulates muscle building in your body without you being conscious of it. And that's the interesting point. So the building blocks of proteins, the amino acids, when they actually are following protein absorption and release in the circulation, those amino acids tell your muscle directly to start building muscle. And they are using themselves as building blocks. So it's, it's really fascinating that your food itself tells your body to do something. One of the things that I've been reading about just sort of in general mass or popular media is that you actually need less physical activity than you might think in order to build muscle. Not that it's encouraging less activity, but saying that as little as a couple hundred steps every hour, or if you just curl your arm every few hours or whatever the study shows, that it can have an impact. What's your perspective on some of those recent studies or articles that have come out? Because I think it can be a little bit confusing that every couple of days you read a new article and you think, well, I just changed my exercise regimen. Does this mean now all I have to do is lift my water bottle three times a day and I'm going to be fit? Or do I still need to do 45 minutes of, of rigorous exercise five times a week? This is always the interesting point, of course, for an athlete, he or she will have to keep training to become better. And so you will have progressive training. You have trainings will become heavier and heavier in order to become a better athlete. Most recreational people or people that exercise for the health, they generally want to lose weight or get a little bit stronger, get a bit more muscle tone. And they do that for a few weeks and or a few months, and then they, they drop off again, and then they, they will lose the muscle again. You can sustain the muscle for a while with activity, but of course, building muscle and losing muscle are two coins of the same sign. Mm, I think that's a good point. I see that myself. If I'm traveling or on vacation and I don't work out for a week, you, you start to feel it pretty quickly, actually. 
The good news is the adaptability of muscle. So the turnover rate is there when you're 10 years old and it's still there when you're 90 years old and you're still alive. So the good news is you can increase muscle mass, strength and function and endurance easily at any age. But you have to keep doing yeah. it in order to sustain the gains. Can't make it better yeah, than that. Yeah, that's <laughs> the good news and the bad news, right? That's a tricky part for most people. Yeah. And the only benefit of nutrition is this, that you can make the gains a little bit easier by optimizing the response to your training. So the exercise, the physical activity is still the key. The nutrition can give you that little edge to get greater benefit from the exercise. Yeah, that's great to remember. The one-two punch. Another research study that you did looked at protein intake in younger people versus older people following exercise. And we touched upon this a little bit before, but what were some of the key differences that you've seen and what are some of the key takeaways for people who are looking to optimize their exercise? Now, what we see, of course, in the young people, if you optimize your protein intake, basically three times a day, 20 grams of each main meal, consuming some protein after an exercise session, you optimize the response to training. Now, we know that the anabolic response to feeding, so the stimulation of muscle protein synthesis following exercise, is a little bit blunted in the elderly, if you look at the broad population of older people. As we progress in science, it seems that it's not necessarily the age per se, but more the less active or more sedentary lifestyle that causes this anabolic resistance. When we get sick or ill or inactive, we see that we have anabolic response to feeding. And you can compensate this actually by physical activity. So the question is, is it aging that makes us less sensitive to the anabolic properties of amino acids, or is it just the decline in physical activity, which generally happens as we get older. If you, uh, for example, immobilize a young person's leg, one of the two legs, you see that the uh, leg that was immobilized, even after a week, behaves and responses like an old people's leg. If you have an older person and you train one leg of that older person, you'll see that leg that was trained actually starts behaving like a young person's leg. So physical activity is the major factor in driving the anabolic response to feeding. That is the key and not necessarily age per se. I think that's really interesting because I think there's this maybe question or notion of, you know, do we lose muscle as we age? And I think what I'm hearing is that it's more related to lifestyle or whether you're sedentary versus active. Is Am I understanding that correctly? No, you're understanding that perfectly. I mean, you see those numbers all the time, like from the age of X, you lose so many percent of muscle per year. Now, that is so depressing if you see something like that. But that's demographics. And yes, as we uh. age, the population gets less muscle than when we're young, when it's about maybe 50% of body mass. When we're 20, it's less than 25 when we're 80. But that doesn't mean that has to be it for the individual. You can still gain a lot of muscle mass as well as strength when you're 80 years old. And yes, even if you stay active, there will be a small decline in muscle mass of that person over the years. But it will never reach a level, at least when you don't get sick or anything like that, you will not get a level where you're incapable of doing your daily functioning. So the actual decline based on age per se is very minimal. So the big message is you don't need to lose a lot of muscle as you age. That is the main, should be the main message and not from a certain age, you're losing so much muscle per year. I think it's a very positive message. And and I think supports a, a lot of people's notion that, hey, age is just a number. Just because my age is increasing doesn't mean that my fitness or my muscle mass or my ability to exercise and stay active is getting less. 
It might get more difficult because you of have course. injuries and you have past injuries and, and you have restrictions and etc. But no, the muscle itself is still very responsive to physical activity. And even though sometimes in the media you read some people are unresponsive to lifestyle intervention or strength training or anything like that, that's not true. I've never seen in my entire life, I've done numerous training studies, I've never seen people not respond to exercise. I've seen people not respond to my advice to exercise, but something else. <laughs> That's an entirely different topic. Exactly. All right. I'm, I'm going to pivot us just a little bit, and I want to talk a little bit about plant-based diets. More and more people are turning to plant-based diets. We read more about it in the media all the time. And some people are doing it because they're concerned for the environment, or others are doing it for health reasons, or even philosophical reasons related to animal welfare. What are your thoughts about the plant-based diets and, and how do people make sure they're getting the right kinds and the right amounts of protein? And is there even such a thing as a, a right kind of protein? And are there differences maybe between plant-based protein and, and, and animal-based protein? Yeah, great questions. And this is one of the, the two hour lectures that I give students, <laughs> but I guess we don't have the time for that. Yeah. So the quality of a protein or the capacity of a protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis is mainly based on two factors, digestibility. So how can a protein be properly digested and the amino acids absorbed and the composition? So which amino acids are being composed of that protein? How much essential amino acids are there? Are there deficiencies in specific amino acids? So amino acid composition and digestibility. In uh, general, the animal-based proteins have what we call a higher quality than most plant-based proteins because of better digestibility and an amino acid composition that looks more like uh, the amino acid composition of our own tissues. So less deficiencies, but all the building blocks that you would need to build up your own tissues. Now, most of the research, to be honest, has been done in animal-based proteins, dairy, meat, uh, those things also because it's easy for research. There's much less work done in plant-based proteins, but from the few that have been assessed for their capacity to stimulate muscle protein synthesis in vivo and humans, we know, for example, gluten, wheat, soy has been tried. And when you compare the anabolic response to eating the same amount of protein, of these protein sources than animal-based proteins, we see a lesser response. These differences are not huge. Now, you can compensate this by simply eating more of the plant-based protein or combining specific plant-based proteins together because then the deficiency in one plant-based proteins will be compensated by the other plant-based protein that has a deficiency on a different amino acid. Or what also a lot of companies do is to fortify a product that is lacking a specific amino acid by that free amino acid. All possibilities to normalize or optimize the anabolic properties of a plant-based protein. Now, going back to real life and people listening, I've spent about 25 million worth of research money to understand postprandial protein handling. If I really look back and everything I've done, I basically provided clinical evidence, which is relevant to stuff that my mom has already told me many years, basically three times a day, have a meal with sufficient protein, be active in between those meals to optimize the use of the protein for muscle protein synthesis. That's not what she said. She just said, eat your meal. And 
sit upright and chew well and maybe have some milk and cookies uh, prior to sleep and going to bed. Now, all of these factors, we now know that they are all relevant. Even the sitting upright to support digestion and absorption, the chewing well, just eat a very balanced meal with different protein sources, consume sufficient protein. And if you're physically active, you already consume more food. And when you consume more food, you also compensate for any deficiencies. So then how does, again, going back to kind of regular people, some of whom are thinking about how much protein they're eating, some of whom are thinking about which proteins they're eating. I'll go back to what you just said a moment ago, what our mothers told us, which is eat balanced meals, eat a little bit of the different food groups, make sure you're getting some protein in each meal. Now that there are so many different options for proteins, how much do people need to think about it? Again, average size person with an average level of activity, does it all kind of work itself out or... How much thought do people or planning do people need in this area so that we avoid any kind of either over-reliance on a particular kind of protein, which could then lead to a, a deficiency or not enough protein at all? Yeah. If somebody asks this question, it's generally from the perspective of athletes, elderly, sick people, children. And so you can address the question specific for a subpopulation. But in general, we know that Basically, every meal should consume or should actually include about 20 grams of protein. That theoretically will be the best. And in general, also elderly, but also athletes, we see that, for example, breakfast is generally short of protein. So if you want to just redistribute your protein throughout the day, just double check that you're not over consuming a lot of protein in your dinner and actually adding a little bit to your breakfast. So you have a more even distribution of protein throughout the day. If you're physically active and you eat healthy, the total protein intake is generally not going to be an issue. And if you want to maximize your response to your training, it's good to have every meal count and have a protein-rich snack after a training session, which could be a well-timed meal or something that you bring along if there's not a possibility to have a meal after your training session. And then you can use a healthy protein-rich snack or actually resort to the protein drinks or the milkshakes that you see people in the gym use. But you can also use whole foods for that. How do you see the future of research changing our understanding of how protein helps us live stronger, healthier lives. You've already done so much research. As you said, there's a lot that we've learned. There's still a lot that we don't know. Is there an elusive question that you're hoping will be uncovered that's going to unlock greater understanding and therefore new guidance? Is there an aha moment that you and other researchers may be looking for? Most of the times I have the opposite of an uh, aha. Just aha, we still don't know anything. I mean, we know a lot (laughs) about muscle and how it adapts to nutrition and stuff like that. But we've started looking at the turnover rate of other tissues. I work at a, a university academic medical center, so I have access to all kinds of surgeons and, and we collaborate. And with all these intermediate projects that are not directly part of my research line, I like to look at the turnover rates of other tissues in vivo and humans. We've looked at brain tissue turnover. We've looked at bone tissue turnover, ligaments, lungs, heart, etc. And what we see there is that the turnover rates of a lot of these other tissues are tremendously much higher than muscle. Are they responsive to nutrition? Is there health responses to nutrition? Mm -hmm. We don't know anything about all of this. It's really amazing that all tissues in your body are so rapidly turning over. There must be a reason for them. There must be the health issue of allowing that turnover to occur. But of course, muscle responds to nutrition. Do all these other tissues respond to nutrition? We don't know. 
We really don't know. I mean, I still think it's ridiculous that we don't. Of course, it's obvious that logistics make it more or less easy to access all these other tissues. But with all the surgeries ongoing, you can actually study these things. It's always fascinating to me how much we know and how much we know leads us to think about how much we don't know. Luke, thank you so very much. This has been a really fascinating discussion on protein. I think you've given us a much greater understanding of why it's necessary to adapt our protein intake according to our lifestyle, our life stage, to think about exercise and to listen to our parents and make sure we're eating good meals three times a day, at least with adequate protein throughout the day. Dr. Luke Van Loon is a professor of exercise and nutrition at the Department of Human Biology at Maastricht University Medical Center. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion and learned something new as much as we did. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to Nutrition Unlocked on Apple Podcasts so you can ensure you don't miss a single episode and you can let others know about the podcast as well. We look forward to sharing more insights on the science of nutrition with you soon, and we look forward to seeing you next time on Nutrition Unlocked.